Father God, as we come before your word this morning, would you likewise bless us? Bless our understanding, bless our hearing. Allow this word to feed us, to be bread for us. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I just came back from a trip to Florida this week, and we returned to this text. And now Jacob's family is taking their own trip down into Egypt. Jacob, if we remember in hearing that his favorite son, and whom he once thought was dead, is actually alive, is taking a step of faith, knowing that God is with him, God goes with him, and God is for him, and leaving the land that was promised to the father Abraham and moving his family into Egypt, which is also actually a fulfillment of a promise to Abraham, knowing that God goes with him. And now as the text opens up, some have died in Jacob's extended family before going into Egypt, mainly Judah's two sons, Ur and Onan, as verse 12 of this chapter points out. But for those remaining, those 66 living, and the four already in Egypt, Joseph's family, the 70 of the father of the, the father who God names Israel, once being Jacob, this family of 70 of Israel will grow into a nation bearing that same name of Israel. And so the trip for this covenant family begins. And as the family approaches Egypt in verse 28, who does Jacob send down to meet Joseph first? Who is the mediator that goes as the representative of the family of sorts to lead them into this new land in which they have been called? Jacob sends forth Judah, the same Judah whom we've recognized through going through this section of Scripture, the filth of so much of the 20 years preceding, but also the same Judah who had the divinely inspired courage at the critical hour when it appeared that the second favored son of Israel, Benjamin, would be taken and lost into slavery, into captivity. He had the courage to say, no, you cannot have him. He is not to be yours because of the Father's love. So my life for his. Judah will lead the covenant family into the new land in which God has prepared for them. The Judah who one time bore the guilt and the shame of the covenant family will be now used as the vehicle for reconciliation, the forerunner, for the reconciliation of the covenant family. And then in verse 29, Joseph rides his chariot to meet his father Israel, the father in whom he loved more than anyone else, presenting himself now adorned with royal robes and a royal authority, and falls upon the father and weeps on his neck with joy. Moses gives us no words that they exchange between one another. There's just this sweet time of embrace with one another. In an earlier chapter, in chapter 37, we saw the covenant family plagued with tears and betrayal, these two. And now we have the glorious tears of joy here in chapter 46. Good tears with regrets that have long melted away. Now, in the underlying Hebrew of this verse, the wording is peculiar. The six other times, there's seven times Genesis does this, the six other time language like this is used 
It's used when an individual is having a divine encounter with God. Abraham has three of these moments in chapter 12, chapter 17, and chapter 18. Isaac has two of these moments in chapter 26, and Jacob has had a moment like this in 35. And has caused a great many commentators to ask, why does Moses choose this unique wording? Choose to echo the divine language of God making these siling kind of appearances in Genesis and link it to this moment where Joseph sees his own father. And my best guess is, and it is a guess, is that God wants to make clear that he is a God who orchestrates reconciliation. He loves moments of reconciliation. He's a God who calls us, even in this present hour, in the current moment of our life, to do things like, fear not. Do not be anxious. Do not be given into despair. And how can we do that? How is that even possible? Let me tell you how it won't come to be. It doesn't come to be by clinging to your guilt or fears. I would actually dare say that clinging to your guilt is like wrapping a millstone around your neck. No, rather, we need to take a picture of what's going on here, of reconciliation of the covenant family brought about by the hand of God. And remember that this is not just something that happened 4,000 years ago, and we should look at it and say, oh, gee, I wish I could have reconciliation like that. But actually, as the Apostle Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, this was the work of Christ. This was a part of the work of Christ so that today we could have reconciliation with God, that we could embrace right now the assurance that Christ gives us. Let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so what does this mean? It means, brothers and sisters, don't say, oh, I wish for a time or I want for a time where I can have this kind of loving embrace, this kind of peace with God the Father. No, you already have in Christ received peace with God. So embrace that joyous reality today. The aim of Christ's ministry wasn't so that we could look forward to peace with God for reconciliation in the future, but he has actually told us in his word, we are to seize, so seize, and grab a hold of the work of Christ that we can live today, that we can live tomorrow, we can live all our days being faithful to remember we have reconciliation right now. The Father so loves us, the favored Son so cherished us, the Holy Spirit so guards after us that our one God in three person has given us today 
full reconciliation to himself and calls us to live in light of that reconciliation, to live in light of that beautiful embrace that our God has given us through the cross of Christ. Our lingering in remorse and regrets and woulda, coulda, shouldas, and not embracing the fullness of this gospel of Christ, to not do that is actually, in one sense, an offense against God and his work. God not only has, in the past, arranged events in Joseph and Jacob's life for a restoration, a moment where tears previous time that were of mourning can now presently be turned into joy, but also on this side of the cross, God has so arranged the story of redemption that Christ has already done everything we need in order to embrace the full reconciliation for our sins today. And if we refuse to receive it, if we refuse to embrace it, the only thing we are guilty of in such a refusal is a lack of faith. But if you grab a hold of that reconciliation, God has already provided for you as he wants you to grab a hold of it in your life. It will so change both you and I and transform us and how we look at our God and even our sins against him that we actually will begin to understand a little bit of what happens in the very next verse of what Jacob says. Jacob now being called Israel had this kind of peace that he has in verse 30. And what is that kind of peace? It's the peace to be able to say, if I die today, I know everything's okay with God. I know I've already been reconciled with God. I know I don't have to be in some sort of kind of mental paranoia of, is it okay going to be okay with me? Jacob says, can die now. I have a peace that I can comfortably die. You know, it was funny. This isn't an application story I'm going to give that you should go do. But I had a moment where I made somebody really angry when on my vacation. My brother surprised me with a fishing trip 60 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico. And I dropped a water bottle in the Gulf of Mexico. And I felt really bad about that. And I thought the captain of the ship gave me permission to jump over the ship and to go rescue the water bottle. And before doing it, you know, some people wouldn't want to do that 60 miles off the coast. I did see a shark in the water 20 minutes later. But before doing it, I said to myself two things. First, I have a pretty good life insurance policy. But also, the second thing was this. I know the Lord of the sharks. I know the Lord, the God over all the sharks. And so I can be at peace with it. And I'm telling you, don't do this as personal application. But I was at peace with it. There is a sense in which what I'm trying to say is if we walk out into the parking lot today and if it is our final moments, Something just happens. That is the appointed hour. Are you ready, Ray? Do you have that kind of peace now today? Don't be one of those people who says, well, I hope, I hope to be reconciled with God. No, be reconciled today. Have your weeping turn into joy today. 
Jacob understood this. And that's why he can say what he says. So I hope that we have the understanding that God grants us a peace that even with the worst sins we've ever committed, the, th- the worst things we've ever done, the things that we should have never done, the addictions that have gotten the better of us, when our eyes should have been cast into Gehenna, when our t- tongue was just cankerous and violent and thoughtless moments of anger and, and other gossip and wickedness, all of it. Do you know that all of it has been reconciled by God so that we should be able to say, I know that even if God takes my life today, I am okay. I am okay. Not I will be okay. I am okay. Not I will be saved. I am saved. Not I will be the Lord's. You are the Lord's. That is the true peace of reconciliation. We need to really grab a hold of that this morning in this first part of the narrative. But then the narrative shifts. It does a dramatic shift. And Joseph, in verses 31 through 34, as chapter 46 closes, begins instructing his family on how to conduct themselves to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh has been very good to this family. And for the astute kind of listener, or if you remember the previous encounter Joseph had with the brothers when he sent them out, Pharaoh has been nothing less than dramatically supportive of the covenant family. He has even sent out literally the moving services and covered the costs of all new stuff for this family. And there was even hints that they would already get the land of Goshen. And so it's a really interesting thing that happens here at the end of chapter 46. Why does Joseph so want to prepare the brothers in what they say before Pharaoh? I mean, this Pharaoh really has given, since his appointment of Joseph, he even sent Joseph out with him in order for the whole country to embrace him and bow before him. What are we to learn from this? Why is Joseph thinking these matters through? And I think it's actually to illustrate the following biblical principle. And the principle is this. Joseph in wisdom, even in times of plenty, is still not fully trusting the state or the authorities of the state. We aren't to place much of our hope in the halls of government, Christians, We're to place the heart of our hope in the heavenly throne room. And if you won't receive this principle of wisdom from Scripture, at least have the wisdom to receive it from even the very history you're sitting upon here today, here at Old Goshen. Or you could even see the cutting the marks of for the Gemeinhaus of of the original builders. You know, when it came to Germany, Germany really breaks down after the Reformation as a two-option kind of system for religious worship. Basically, Lutheran and Roman Catholic. There are times and there are periods the Reformed are embraced, but there are also times and periods where the Reformed are maligned. The Anabaptists, I mean, they had raised their hands very quickly and said, we had it even worse. 
realize that, especially for the reformed wing of this church, they understood well this principle of Joseph. Don't overly trust government. We live in a world that is constantly, it's a very scary kind of idea. It doesn't want us ever to question government. That's not a biblical principle. We're allowed to question government. You find me a government that doesn't want itself to be questioned, and I'll find you a government that will quickly, if not already, persecute Christians, and that is not living faithfully to biblical principles. Joseph is illustrating the principle that we Christians need to clearly and unashamedly hold in our day. We are to be loyal to our covenant family first and foremost, even against government itself. I mean, why did the pilgrims land on Plymouth Rock? Because the Reformed Pilgrim Puritans had long ago, had before, had the government of Britain basically land upon it and cast them out. But also consider the wisdom of the land Joseph is politicking for, this land of Goshen. There was wisdom in picking this land. This land was upon the border boundary of the promised land. And it was on the exterior of Egypt. Actually, as we get into the story of Exodus, part of the ability for the Israelites to successfully get out of Egypt is because they are settled in the land of Goshen. They get a head start in one sense. And what happens, of course, what are we going to eventually get into? The Pharaoh will pursue. They, another Pharaoh will pursue and try to put them in chains. Once again, they were separate and distinct. They were allowed to grow a nation, grow a community. And yet also, though, there's something else to appreciate. Joseph didn't resign from government. Joseph's continued to bless government. He didn't d decide to, you know, my family settled in Goshen. I'm going to go be like the Amish and New Holland and completely separate my ourselves. You know, there's a popular book. We were just at a dinner party on Friday, and somebody brought it up, the Benedict Option. And what the Benedict Option basically says, in short summary, is that it's obvious that Western culture has unhinged itself from Christian morality. It wants to advance, and it believes it will advance by this unhinging itself of Western morality, of Christian morality, really, not Western. And so, how do we prepare? for the looming dark age that will come. And there have been dark ages before. And the Benedict option looks at the life of Benedict himself, uh, not the Benedict in Rome currently, the brother in Christ. And what Benedict did is he was very set on making faithful communities and making sure he that he was engrafted into faithful communities, but planting faithful communities. He planted about 12 in his lifetime where people could band together and ride out the oncoming storm as he saw this former empire that had standards of law basically dirge and, and descend into barbarism. And there's likely some wisdom in that. I don't think I'm the only person who thinks in the last couple of years that there seems to be a hurricane of a storm basically on the horizon. But there is one thing we need to be careful of, Christians. And I say this as someone who has now preached here for more than four years. 
and I've come to love Pennsylvania Dutch culture. I really do love Pennsylvania Dutch culture, even though I can't understand you individuals who go into a breakfast restaurant and you have all these great options and you pick Scrapple to eat. That's just wrong. Especially when there's eggs Benedict on it, on the menu and stuff. That's just wrong. Stop doing it. But, but I will say, and I think we have to admit, Pennsylvania Dutch culture has a little bit of a desire in hard times to be like, we keep to our own. In one sense, it wants to ride out the storm in a submarine rather than to an ark that others can get onto. If you don't believe me, just drive out to New Holland during the week. Those are people riding out life storms in submarines, largely. Yaman. And there's some wisdom and there's some blessing that they have in the community, but I don't think they're embracing the fullness of what it's called. Goshen will be a land. We will see Goshen as a land, and it's already been a land. In, in Joseph's wife and Judah and Tamar, that has already engrafted in other people. People that are unexpected to be saved and be a part of the community. And it will continue to do that. And we need to, as we see the looming hurricane, the looming storms on the horizon, we need to have the wisdom to not just blindly trust government, but also the love to still understand that we got to keep the doors open. That if, okay, if a dark age and if a period of time is coming upon us in this land of Goshen that we currently stand upon, we still, that all this is going to mean is that there are more weary out in the world. And so we need to embrace that. We need to call them in. So we need to have the courage to do that. No submarines. So let me catch up with my notes. Even if we are close to the days unlike unto Noah, when no one else will come in, when the covenant family has been established and set, and Christ's second coming is soon at hand, we still must resolve until that final act of God's return, that final act of God's second coming, the act of judgment, to warmly call others to the shelter from the looming storm. And so Joseph's politicking is successful. Pharaoh has conceded the very best of Egyptian land to the covenant family of God and even entrusts the people of God to watch over his own flocks, even if his own subjects would have found that repulsive. Because for at least for this specific Pharaoh, he understands that these covenant people, they've been a blessing to him. These people of the true Lord, they've been a blessing to him, and so he wants to engraft them into his government. And then we reach the center of the chiasm. Center what? The center of the chiasm. So that means for some of you, oh no, Kevin's getting wordy. Let me take a quick nap. I'll wake you up at the end. A chiasm is this. A chiasm is the Hebrew way of showing the main point. Traditionally, if you write a scholastic paper, you write your thesis at the end of the first paragraph. There's other variations of it. To know those, just see Mary Whitworth after church. But traditionally, when you write your paper, the last sentence of your first paragraph is the main point. If you don't, if you don't get anything else, just understand this. Well, the Hebrews used to write these stories with parallel points that were happening, and then 
Then there in the middle was the heart of the point, the middle of the subject, the, what the person really wanted you to understand. And so Moses from chapter 43 to chapter 50 writes this chiasm. And at the center of it is verses seven through 10. We've had amazing things happen from chapters 43, and we're going to have more amazing things to come through chapter 50. And the center point, the one thing Moses wants you to grab a hold of, if anything else, is at least 47, 7 through 10. If you're excited about this idea, email me after church. I'll give you the full breakdown. For those of you who nodded off, you can now come back and listen. So what's at the center? This 130-year-old man walks up to the most powerful, and I'm going to use a California word, dude in all the world, by the world standard. And he pats him on the head and blesses him. You imagine like being invited to a G8 conference greatest but powerful rulers in the world. There's a couple of rulers who probably would have me kill if I patted them on the head for a blessing. Oh, I'm superior to you. So a few things are here, three things in this blessing. First, God uses the weak to shame the strong. God uses the weak things of the world to show his true power and might. There's an illustration of that here. But then there's this amazing reality. I want to read it just so I, I get Jacob's words. Listen to what he says. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourn. What is he saying? I mean, this is a Jacob just had said, you can take my life, Lord. I'm ready. I have a peace now. I'm ready. Take me. I can go now. But here with Pharaoh, after he gives this blessing, I mean, I almost wonder about Pharaoh. Was he got? If your days have been so awful, if you've had so much suffering, why did you just bless me? Why did Israel bless me through, even though he's one who's been made to suffer? But in this is a powerful sting of how God works in this world. And I just want to take a moment to truly appreciate the suffering that Jacob was enduring, had endured. He wrestled with his brother in the womb. It starts from the womb. His earthly father did not prefer him. Even when his earthly father should have extended the blessing of the family line to him because Esau had sold it, he still tries to skip over it, and only Jacob, through deception, receives it. He's a father-in-law who tricks him into marrying the wrong woman, and basically what would have felt like for Jacob, losing seven years of his life, he flees from his brother, worried about death. He sometimes has cities he's worried about being wiped out from, and his father-in-law wiping him out, and Esau 
He has his daughter violated. He has his favored son, the son in whom he loves, but he also loves his other sons, whom he sent out the favored son in order to make sure the other brothers were okay. He believes he loses him into death for 20 years. Well, his children lie to him about it. He has his eldest son betray him by having an affair with his concubine. He has an encounter with God where God breaks his hip. Think about that for evangelism. Oh, I love the God I worship and adore. Oh, really? What has he done for you? Well, we wrestled one night. He broke my hip. I'll, I'll stay a pagan. Jacob knew suffering. But Jacob also saw, Israel also saw that through this suffering, all the known world was able to have bread to eat and to feast upon. They would not taste death and starvation because of the suffering of Israel. And so that's why he can walk up to the most powerful man in the world, knowing all the suffering that he endured, and say, I know still that my suffering had a purpose in the Lord, and so I can extend my hand and bless even you, Pharaoh. So remember, our suffering has a purpose. And remember, governments are blessed when they embrace the covenant family of God. It's okay to long for and desire the nations to receive the blessing that we as a people of God, we as the salt of the earth, have to offer. But also we need to prepare to endure trials, to endure suffering. I love the fact that I hated the false form of Christianity I grew up in. I always had to pretend everything was okay and I was always happy. And everything was always wonderful. I'm great, great, yeah. As everything crumbles around. Just Moses wants us to center around and center upon and think upon quite significantly the fact that in Jacob, in Israel, is found blessing even through suffering. So let us think about on that as well today. What an amazing word. And so how can we bless the world today and how can we do that? How can we stand firm when gale force winds are likely starting to be upon us, if not? Or if maybe they're still on the horizon. We can do that if we remember the one who foreknew the storm that was to come on Calvary. He knew the suffering that he would be made to endure. He knew it so much and he knew it so well that he even sweat blood in the garden as hell's fury began to be poured upon him. And yet our Lord and Savior, he held fast and firm as the greatest storm in all of history began to unravel and be poured out upon him. And he kept his ground and he stood fast and he understood that much would be accomplished through his suffering, giving us not only reconciliation today with our heavenly Father, but also an opportunity to bless the nations with living bread to share that being the saving gospel of Christ 
And so let us prepare ourselves even for the worst of possible times, those seasons where we desire to cower, desire to give up and give in and surrender into despair, to still honor the one in whom has given us the wooden ark of all arks, the cross itself, in which forgiveness, mercy, hope, and love can be found today. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, give us the courage and the wisdom to see through suffering in this life in order to be a blessing unto others. Give us the wisdom and discernment to understand that our full and final faith is not in the kings and princes of this world, but the king of all kings, our Lord of all lords. Lord, you at times draw us into hardship, and sometimes storms come, and yet you use that in order to produce a greater endurance, a greater love, a greater satisfaction, a greater reliance upon you. We thank you for that. Even if at times in those moments we fail to remember that we should thank you for that. And so now we take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord, confess our times where we have failed to do so. And we'd confess it knowing you have fully given us peace this day. You are Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.